0: Pastor Eric is continuing his sermon series in the book of Matthew, so I invite you to please turn with me to our scripture lesson this morning, which is found in Matthew chapter 25, verses 14 through 30. If you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to grab one of those Red Pew Bibles in front of you and follow along as I read. Once again, Matthew 25, starting at verse 14. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. "'Master,' he said, "'you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more.' His master replied, "'Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things.' So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside, into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Pray with me. God and Father, as we come to your word this morning, I pray that you might be teaching us what it means to be faithful servants with what you have given us. Pray that you would be near to us, that we all sinners might hear and learn that I, a sinner, might be guarded as I preach this to say only what is true. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we've got this story this morning, and if you are just joining us for the first time, we've been walking through um, not all of, but significant chunks of kind of what we're calling the last words of Jesus from Matthew, which is to say that chunk of six chapters in Matthew which record the things that Jesus kind of teaches and says in the final words of his life. And... Um, Before we talk about this story, it's important to just kind of remember where we are in Matthew. If you weren't with us, so last week, we looked at Jesus' teaching about the end of the world, which was an interesting um, time, about Christ's return. And in particular, we saw that he's calling people to be watchful of Christ's return. Um, And that can, that's important, but that can actually strike us in a certain kind of complicated way. So watchfulness, as Jesus uses it there, means being ready in case his return is like tomorrow, right? Not putting off the good that we're called to do today until tomorrow, presuming upon it. But um, what's interesting is when you kind of look at the different ways Jesus talks about his return, there's really two things that he stresses that, that are in tension with each other, that pull in two directions. One kind of goes with that watchfulness, and that's the idea that his return is imminent. That word means that it could be any minute, right? It could be tomorrow. It's imminent, Um, But then he also sometimes talks about how it could be distant, right? That it could still be hundreds of years away. And, um, And it's still a reality, though, even though it could be distant that should shape our lives. And I point that out because if last week, this is all part of the same discussion about the end times, and if last week Jesus is saying things to remind us of that imminent side, I feel like in many ways what this parable is about is talking about what we, how we should live even if it is distant, even if it is still a long way off. And here's the story that Jesus tells in light of that. So this man, he says, is going on a journey. Right? And given how, I mean, this is a land before airplanes and automobiles and, you know, sending text messages and Skyping to check in and see how things are going. So when someone goes on a journey to somewhere far away, this is like a long time, right? Like months or maybe even years that this guy is going to be gone. And this guy is rich. And we know that because he gives his servants a ton of money. Um, the NIV says, um, bags of gold. Um, if you're familiar with some of the older ways that this, is, you know, this story is told, the word is talent, which does not mean like an ability or skill that you have. A talent in the ancient world was a weight of measurement. We actually use the word talent to mean an ability or skill because of this parable, for your fun fact for this morning. But um, in Jesus' world, a talent means... About a hundred pounds, and when we're talking about money, it means about a hundred pounds of gold or silver, which is a lot of money, right? And so he calls in these servants, and he gives them a bunch of money. One guy gets 500 pounds, like, of gold, and one guy gets 200, and one guy gets 100. Remember, a hundred pounds of gold, right? I would be fine if you only gave me a hundred pounds of gold, yes? (laughs) We're still talking about a lot of money, all right? And he doesn't tell the servants what exactly to do with this money, but it's clear from what happens that he expects them to just kind of manage it and take care of it until he gets back, right? And so they do. The guy with 500 pounds goes and he puts it to work, it says, um, now there's no stock market in this day, but he invests it somehow, right? Probably somehow like he goes and buys some calves and starts a herd of cattle and breeds cattle or he buys cargo on some merchant ships and ships them around the world. But he goes out and he puts the money to work and starts managing it and before, after some amount of time passes, he's got another 500 pounds of gold worth of stuff. And the guy um, with 200 pounds of gold does the same thing and goes and invests that and gets 200 back. And then there's a guy with 100 pounds of gold. And he takes it and he buries it. According to the parable, and that's not as strange in Jesus's world as it is in ours. This is a thing that you would do sometimes if you had valuables, right? Like like pirates on desert islands, but you'd take it out somewhere and you'd bury it, and as long as you did a good job of hiding it, and as long as um, you remembered where it was, I guess, then you could come back and get it and be safe. But the master comes back, and he checks in with these servants. And the first servant gives this report and his master says, great job, right? You've doubled the money. Come celebrate with me. Come manage even more of my estate. And the second servant servant comes and gives his report and he gets the same response. And then the third servant comes back. And it's important to notice how that conversation goes, actually. This is one of those stories that we're so used to that we can miss the details of it. But so the first two servants, the master calls them in, and they start telling him what they did with the money, right? But the third servant comes back, and instead he starts talking about the master, um, talking about what he is like. So if you look in verse 24, the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I know that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And within this story, we're supposed to understand that that's kind of nonsense, all right? The servant tries to blame his actions on the master, but it just isn't true. It doesn't even make sense with what the servant says, which is what the master points out. He says, okay, even if I am this kind of master, why didn't you put the money in the bank, right? So that at least you would have gotten some interest from it. The problem isn't with the master, it's with the servant, he is wicked and lazy, the master says, and so he takes away the talent of gold and gives it to the one with ten, and he has that servant thrown out. So that's the story. And Like I said, in many ways, that's familiar. But what I want us to ask this morning is just, what does that mean for us? What are some things that that story should remind us of? As I reflected on it, there's a couple. First, it's, I think it should just teach us that life is a gift, Life is a gift, which I know sounds like something you would put on a coffee mug, right? Or that you would buy on one of those signs that you'd stick in your house at Hobby Lobby. But that doesn't mean it's not true. <laughs> and in fact, it's a lot truer than I think those coffee mugs and signs make us realize. So so here's, here's, why, here's why I'm thinking about that from this parable, right? So what are these talents that the master gives supposed to stand for? That's an important question. And I think our instinct is to say that they just stand for talents, right, in the English sense of the word. Um, like we said, that's where we get that word from. And, and that's true in part, all right? Part of what talents are supposed to represent are skills and abilities. But I think it's more than just that. So remember, all of these chapters, right, starting back in verse 22, are really Jesus kind of, in this long way, throwing down with kind of the religious establishment, right, of Israel and explaining how they're getting religion wrong. And, um, and so what's wrong with these religious leaders who oppose Jesus. Part of his answer, um, I think is that God's people, as he sees it, are gifted in all kinds of ways. Right? He stresses this at other points in these final in this final week. He points out that just the fact that they are God's people, right, called out from the nations, that that's a gift. Scripture makes clear, right, that that that, that Israel and that God's people—they're not chosen because they're like cooler or better or stronger or wiser than the people around them. It's just an act of God's love, and they have God's word, right, revealed to them, and they experience His working in their midst, and His presence dwells in their midst in the temple. They have all of these gifts that God has given them, and part of the problem for the religious leaders Jesus is confronting, is that they aren't recognizing the giftedness of all of that. They aren't appreciating that these are things that God has given them, that these talents, this wealth, right, the bags of gold, they aren't appreciating that those are things that God provides. So when we read about these servants and their talents, we shouldn't just think about gifts that God gives in terms of like, this is something that I'm really talented in. But We should think about it, it should be everything, Right? Everything. I mean... Like the problem with those life is a gift Hobby Lobby signs is that I think we read them and what we think they mean is just that like the fancy accessories of life are a gift, right? Like when you think about someone talking about life being a gift, they're talking about like this beautiful spring day, right? Or like a chocolate bonbon, you know, sipping your latte while you're sitting out on your porch string, right? It's like these these like hashtag blessed kind of gifts that people post online, but what scripture says when it talks about life being gifted, it means everything. It means like air is a gift, right? That like, that like the fact that you can suck this stuff into your lungs, right? And have it spread through your body and live because of it. That if the Lord hadn't created that, and if the Lord didn't still, still sustain the universe, that we would all be rolling on the ground suffocating. <laughs> That, um, that air is a gift. If God was not providing this mix of hydrogen and nitrogen and oxygen and carbon dioxide in the perfect balance, that we wouldn't be alive. And those lungs are gifts too, right, in scripture. And your heartbeat and the neurons firing in your brain that let you think about stuff. And, and, you know, I mean, every element of your body, you have opposable thumbs so that you can, like, pick things up, right? Like, that's a gift of God. And if we didn't have those things we wouldn't have them they're not things we engineered or came up with and that's that's just a tiny sliver of it in scripture it's it's re- It's like breakfast I was thinking about this morning, right? That like sunlight and the plants that photosynthesize that sunlight that we can eat and the animals that eat those plants that we can eat are things that God provides. And the fact that like milk comes from cows and orange juice grows on trees and and chickens have babies in a way that we find delicious and the, the hindquarters of pigs, right, taste the way that they do, like all of that is things that God provides. And you could go on all day with... With that. And that includes stuff higher up the ladder too, right? It does include our talents and abilities. I mean, if you're strong or smart or creative or empathetic, you are that way because God gave you the capacity to be it. Our money is from God. The stuff that we do at our job, the hands that we type with, every element of the whole like economy, all of that ultimately is from God. Without God's provision, it's not just that we wouldn't have like bonbons and porch springs and the things that we think about as being gifts of God. It is that we wouldn't have anything at all. All of this is gifted. And we're going to talk about what that means in this parable in just a minute. But I think it's worth just reflecting on that fact before we do because that just in itself should always be something that humbles us that we have minds that God created and bodies that he formed and we walk in a world that he spoke full of potentials that he designed to be there under a sun that he causes to shine. That should humble us. I often... In pride or anger or whatever, I approach God and I, I, I try to have this conversation with him as if we're equals, right? And on the one hand, God is gracious and descends in relationship with me, and so it's good to have a conversation with him, right? It is good to enter into that kind of relationship. But on the other hand, we are not equals. In Genesis 1, when God creates the world, He speaks it, right? He says, Let there be, and there is. And one of the things that I sometimes reflect on is that that should teach me about where I stand in relationship to my creator. I like to think that we're kind of like two guys sitting down at a bar having a chat about our day, but the reality is that my relationship to God is like like an interjection, like an um or a but that he says, right? It's like he speaks the word Eric, and then that word hanging in the air turns around and says to him, you know, I think we should have a conversation about the things that you're saying, And again, that doesn't mean that God doesn't enter into a relationship with us and that he isn't happy to hear us, even when we somewhat pretentiously come to him as equals. But it is meant to remind us that even that relationship we have with God is an example of our giftedness, too. That that is not even something that we deserve. We are words allowed to commune with the narrator. Everything we have is a blessing. Blessing. So the first thing this story reminds us is that life is a gift. But that goes directly into the second point, which is really more what this story is focusing on, and that's that gifts, God's gifts, are a mission. Gifts always come with a mission in Scripture. The rich guy gives his servants money, and it's clear that they are meant to do something with it, right? That's what the first two servants understand, and that's probably what the third servant understands, too. It's just that he doesn't do it, and he buries it in the ground. Now, remember, like we said, this parable is meant to explain what the religious leaders Jesus is challenging are getting wrong. And this is really it. Jesus is saying, God has gifted you. Not just in general ways, he's gifted everyone. He's especially gifted you. He's given you the law and the temple and chosen you as his people. And that is meant for something. Israel's gift in scripture is always meant for something. It's there right at the beginning when God calls Abraham. He says in Genesis 12, when he calls out Abraham, he says, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. You hear that rhythm, right? God says, I will bless you, and you will be a blessing. All people on earth will be blessed through you. And that rhythm is repeated over and over in the Bible. We won't look at all the places this morning, but that is the mission of God's people, to be a light to the Gentiles, to be a beacon of goodness and love in the midst of an evil world, to be the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdoms of this age. And the problem for the people that Jesus is challenging is that they have taken those gifts of God and instead of using them on that mission to bless the world, they've hidden them they've buried them in the ground. They've tried to keep them secret and safe and just for themselves rather than walking into this mission that God has given them to bless the world around them. That rhythm of being blessed and therefore being called to be a blessing, that rhythm is foundational to Christianity. We are God's people now, right? We're called to be a blessing to this world, a light to those around us, a beacon of love and goodness to the watching world, the kingdom of God in the midst of the kingdom of this age. Every gift that we have from God, from birth and breath to new birth and the Holy Spirit, every gift God gives us is meant to be used to be a blessing. We spend so much time, I spend so much time dreaming dreams for myself. Dreaming dreams about me, right? It's staggering when I think about it. Like, how much time do I spend thinking about the stuff that I would like to buy, right? And thinking about how I would like to spend my time for myself, right? This evening, this weekend, my next vacation. All the stuff that I can do for me. And it's not wrong to dream some of those dreams, right? God's gifts are good and it's fine to enjoy them, but we're gifted not just so we can bury it in the ground, but so we can use it for God's mission so that we can bless others. So something that I was reflecting on this week is what if we spent some of the time that we spent dreaming about ourselves and instead spent it dreaming about the sorts of things that we could do to bless others, right? Not just doing some duty, but thinking, how am I gifted? What have I been given? And how can I use that to bless the people around me? I mean, seriously, I just think it's important to spend some time dreaming about it, to be creative with it. I mean, there's one example I was thinking about as I reflected on this. There was this church that I used to be a part of, um, and there was this woman at the church, um, and there were, there were a couple of families at the church who had kids with kind of significant disabilities, right? Um, and, and, and that can be exhausting for families and for parents, right? And most of the people, when we interact with a family with disabilities, we feel kind of bad to them. You know, we try to empathize. We maybe help in a few little ways, but then we kind of just get on with our lives. But this, this one woman that I'm thinking of, somehow this, this gave her an occasion to start dreaming. And she thought, wouldn't it be awesome if we could, like, organize a way to help these families? And so she, what she ended up doing is putting together what she called a respite day where a group of volunteers took their kids for, like, six hours, and the parents could go, like, rest or shop or, you know, have a romantic outing. The, the stuff they could never do because they never got a break, right? They took all their kids... And she rounded up volunteers and organized it. And it was a beautiful blessing. And then they did it again. And then they started doing it regularly. And more and more families, you know, from outside of the church, were even able to bring their kids and be blessed by that. And, and I tell you that story because we could do that kind of thing. Like, you could do that kind of thing. Maybe not that exact thing, right? I feel like it's easy when you hear that kind of story to think, like, I should do that. And that's not why I'm telling it. But, um... But so often, I, we see brokenness in the world and we think, that's too bad, right? I wish that somebody would do something about that. But what God would remind us of is that we individually and we together as a body are remarkably gifted and those gifts give us an opportunity to be a blessing. Oftentimes, our failure to bless people isn't because the gifts aren't there, it's just because we failed to dream the dreams of what we could actually do to bless them. So I think this this parable just is a calling, a reminder for us to think about how to use all the things that God gives us to open our imaginations and think about how we could bless people. Let me mention one specific reason connected to this that I think we don't do that. One reason that we spend... um, I think we spend too much time sometimes comparing our gifts to the gifts of others, right? We easily look around our group of friends and acquaintances and we pick out like the person who seems the most gifted at each thing and we're not them, right? That Bob is way better at communicating and Tasha is way smarter and Andre seems to have more wisdom and whatever, right? And that leaves us feeling like, well, I guess there's nothing for me to do. That because my gifts aren't as great as this person's, that they aren't important, And this story is actually about God giving different amounts of gifts to different people, right? You notice that, that he gives different, you know, different talents to different people. Um, He gives one guy five, one guy two, one guy one, and the guy who gets five gets five more, and the guy who gets two gets two more, right? So it acknowledges that fact. But here's the thing. So look at how the master responds to the servant who ends up with ten talents, right, with ten bags of gold. In verse 21, it says, His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. All right? So he says that to the guy with 10 talents. And now compare that the guy who ends up with four talents and started with two comes. In verse 23, this is how the master responds to him. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So did you catch the difference? No, you didn't, because there isn't a difference, right? The reward, the master's pleasure, his delight in this person, his congratulations to them for using their gifts, it is exactly the same for the guy who ends up with ten talents and the guy who ends up with four. His pleasure in them is based on their faithfulness to use their gifts, not in how big the end results are. God does give different people different amounts of gifts. That's true, right? Even within the same area of giftedness, there are people with greater gifts than me. But that doesn't mean that people with more gifts matter more to God right? God does not need any of our gifts, honestly. It's easy to miss that when we're talking about kind of using our gifts for God, but he could go get this thing done by his own power if he needed to. His delight isn't in how gifted we are, because that's what he's done. His delight is in how we use the gifts that he's given us. That's what we're responsible for, and that is what we should seek and celebrate, right? We need to stop comparing ourselves to those around us who are more gifted or more visible or whatever, but simply ask, what gifts do I have, and how can I use those to be a blessing? All right. In just a minute, I want to make a general comment about how this story meets me, but there's one more specific thing I think that it teaches, and that is that it teaches that the mission is the reward. The mission is the reward. There's two interesting things about this story that on your first read, I think it's easy to miss. One is that... The faithful servant, he has these talents, and he goes and he invests the talents, and what does he end up with? More talents, right? That makes sense when it comes to money in this parable, but I think it's worth considering that that's true of giftedness more generally, too. That one of the main things we get when we use our gifts is more of the gift and more opportunities to use it. So for instance, like being generous, right? There is this way of talking about generosity that you sometimes hear from like guys on TV and the radio that gets kind of toxic, right? It comes and it says that if you give, if you're generous, God will give back to you tenfold, right? And, um, and they make it sound like that means that if you go like give a $20 bill, that's okay because God will give you $200 in return. And the problem with that is that that's really just saying that if you're generous, God will make it so you don't have to be generous, which is not what the scripture says. Rather, what scripture teaches and what this parable teaches is that if you are generous, then what God will give you is the blessings of being generous and more opportunities to be generous, right? Not more money in the bank. That becomes clearer when you see how the servants are rewarded. If you look again at verse 21, right, where the master replies, he says, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. So the master is pleased with how the servant managed this money that he gave him. And his reward is to let him manage more of the master's money. (laughs) That's the reward. He's putting him over many things. That and the fellowship of the master. The mission is the reward. That's the problem with the view I just mentioned. That being generous is somehow rewarded by getting more stuff for yourself. Right? Because ultimately, that's the opposite of generosity. It views generosity as the sort of necessary evil, right? This bad thing that you do just so that you can get more stuff for yourself. But in truth, right? In scripture, greed is the evil and generosity is good. That we shouldn't be generous to get more stuff. We should be generous because generosity is worthwhile. It's beautiful and it brings more joy and happiness than greed and self-service does. There's this terrible idea many of us have that serving others is somehow ultimately a sacrifice, that we're supposed to serve and do good and love simply out of this sort of noble ambition to suffer, even though it costs us a lot and gives us nothing in return. And that's not what Jesus actually teaches. One of the striking things about Jesus is that he regularly promises us rewards for doing good. He does it here, he does it lots of times, but he's doing it not because not to just like make us be mercenary, not to make us just sort of like, you know, try to tally up the bottom line. He's doing it because he's trying to tell us that if we want to be joyful and happy and have lives that are flourishing and meaningful, the best way to do that is by serving others. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, he summarizes the message like this. The best way to do good to to do ourselves good, is to be doing good to others. The best way to gather is to scatter. The best way to do ourselves good is to be doing good to others. But here's the thing. Again, that's not because that somehow then feeds our selfish desires. It's not that the rewards don't undo the sacrifices. Rather, this is the principle. Doing good for others does us good because doing good is good. Let me say that again because that's a confusing sentence, I know. But doing good for others does us good because doing good is good. The life that God calls us to, doing good is good. <laughs> We aren't supposed to obey and serve and love out of fear or punishment or out of sad resignation or out of some kind of idea desire to just like whip ourselves and beat ourselves to show ourselves as holy. We're supposed to obey and serve and love because those are actually the best things that we can do. In Psalm 19, David says the law of God is more precious than gold, than much pure gold, sweeter than honey, honey from the honeycomb, that you don't keep God's ways. You don't live your life serving him because it's costly. You do it for the same reason that you would take a bar of gold or a taste of honey because it is sweet and valuable. The good that we're called to is actually good. And let me try to sum all that up, right? Because I feel like all of that can be a little abstract. There's this question that I found myself thinking about um, the whole week as as I wrote this sermon and several things I was reading seemed to connect back and drive me to it, and that is the question I think Jesus leaves me with when I think about this parable is, do I want an easy life, a safe life, a comfortable life, right? Do I want that, or do I want a meaningful life? Do I want an easy life, or do I want a meaningful life? I mean, if you stop for a minute and think about our world, right, about what it tells you the ideal life looks like, what, what the dream is, right, what the television shows and the advertisements and all of that tells you the good life looks like. Thinking about all those TV shows and reality shows and stuff, here's what I think the story basically is. It says the ideal life, the good life, so you go to college, You get a job, and you buy a nice place, and you meet some attractive people, and eventually you marry one of them, and you you have some attractive kids, maybe, if that's your thing, right, or maybe not, and then you get a better-paying job or a promotion, and you get an even nicer house, and you travel some, and you spend your free time going to nice restaurants and day drinking and gossiping with your friends or watching television and playing golf, and if you have kids, you keep them safe and their problems essentially domestic, and you do all that until you can get an early retirement. And then you ditch the job part, and it's all golf and day drinking and travel and nice restaurants and gossip until, and then they usually leave that last part fuzzy, right? And a lot of why they do is because that last part is what really calls into question everything I just said, because then you die, right? And that inevitably raises the question, what was that life we just described worth? Did it matter much? The answer, I think, if that is all that life consists of, what I just described is no. doesn't matter much at all. I know that that's a hard truth. But that life, right? What is lost when that life passes? I mean, sure, if you decided to have kids, they will miss you. And maybe your couple of gossip partners or golfing buddies, right? They'll miss you. And all the people who sold you stuff will probably miss you in a very basic and mercenary way. But by and large, you passed through the stream of this world, right? And you barely left a ripple. Do you want an easy life or do you want a meaningful one? I mean, here's what I mean, right? I remember reading a story a little while back from a guy who runs... um, this missions organization, of this woman he knew named Margaret Cole, right? Who, um, I mean, she died in the 90s, so she was doing this a little while away. But so Margaret, she worked humbly in a hospital keeping medical records, and then her husband passed away. And she felt like, I mean, she had been faithful in raising her kids and serving Jesus up to that point, but she, she's at this point. She's 71 now, and, um, and this is the point where everyone would say, like, you just check out, but she feels like this is an opportunity to do things that are meaningful, and so first she went to work for several years for Wycliffe Bible Translators in Papua New Guinea. And then she helped start a hospital in Guatemala for a couple more years. And then she moved to Thailand, where she taught England to, English to refugees. And then, at the age of 80, she heard in then Burma, the country that's now Myanmar, where Christianity was illegal, that They didn't have any Bibles, and so she stuck eight Bibles in a suitcase and flew to Burma and smuggled Bibles into Burma and gave them to some Christians that she had heard about there. And because that went so well, she concluded that was a calling of the Lord, and she started smuggling Bibles into the USSR at the age of 81 and smuggled some 25 Bibles to different churches there, right? And when asked about the absurdity of that at 81... Um, she replied, those who have retired shouldn't think of this as the end of their useful lives. God's divine employment agency has an infinite number of exciting openings, and he never misses in suiting the job exactly to the person. And here's the thing, because I've always remembered that story, right? Margaret Cole is not going to be on some glamorous television show showing off a good life, but her life mattered, Right? People are alive today because of the ways that she decided to spend her years. And people know Jesus because of her. And churches had Bibles that didn't have Bibles. Because this woman, 25 years after society would have told her to just live on the golf course, decided instead to smuggle them into the USSR. And look, not every meaningful life has to look like that, right? It doesn't have to look like going overseas and doing that stuff. It can look much humbler and more local. But I think about, there are a few people I always think about here at Kish who I'm not going to name or look at right now because they would probably feel embarrassed or I'll try not to. But they regularly take those who are sick or struggling to doctor's appointments, or to grocery shop, or just, you know, they just sit with them. I mean, I, I do pastoral visits for different people, and, sometimes, and th- there will be these people that I just consistently are like, oh yeah, they dropped by, you know, yesterday, or oh, they're coming by later. And that stuff matters, right? They are blessing the world around them. It matters far more than just catching up on the latest TV show. And what's striking is that a lot of the people that do that, they often don't even realize that they're doing something unusual because they found so much blessing in that kind of life, um, so much meaning in the things that they're doing. Or I think about, like, as a parent, I think a lot about raising my kids, right? Right? Um, and raising them not to just pursue that dream that I described, but raising them to seek to be blessings in the world. One of the one of the things that struck me this week, I was reading this article and thinking about this stuff, and it was about this father who um, had met Jesus later in life, but he started taking his daughters every summer to Tijuana because he wanted to to give them the chance to work with the poor there. And he was praying from the age that he started this, and they were young, that they might decide to serve the poor. And his oldest daughter, he just mentioned, instead of studying law like he did, was in college now studying Spanish because she wanted to go serve the poor. And he was excited. He was thrilled by that. And I read that and I thought, yes, right? Like that is such a more meaningful dream to dream for your children than simply that they might have kind of, you know, comfortable, easy lives and then pass just like you without a trace. That, that matters, right? I mean, that, that is what all of us in different ways are called to. Having a life of faith in service to others because it refuses to buy into this myth that self-service and self-satisfaction are what we are here for. A faith that doesn't take the gifts of God and buries them, but that looks around and says, I have these opportunities to bless, right? And I'm going to be a blessing. Because here's the thing, that life that I just described is certainly harder than the kind of easy, ideal dream life, right? But that life is better, right? When we hear about it, you just, I mean, I at least just feel that like that life matters. It's far more worthwhile than a life full of big houses and big promotions and nice retirements and dying without causing the world to take notice, right? The world trembles before those sorts of humble, selfless lives the foundations of the earth shakes and the lord is pleased so that's what i'd encourage us toward this morning to recognize that everything that we have our lives and our time and our talent and our money everything is gifts from god and those gifts aren't meant for us to grow fat and lazy on they aren't meant to be buried and hidden they are meant to be lived into to lead us into God's mission. Because that mission is a source of meaning and purpose and the true path to joy and significance in this life and in the life to come. So wherever we are, whatever gifts we have, however small, however humble they feel, however we feel like they don't measure up to others, take those gifts and use them because then the Lord will look at us too and say, well done, faithful servant, and invite us into his happiness. Let's pursue that with all of our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, I just thank you first for the people that I've had the opportunity to see who live these sorts of lives, um, who seek to use their gifts for you. I give thanks for all of the faithful saints that are an encouragement to me to seek to live that kind of life. And I pray that you would give all of us an appreciation for all the rich ways you've gifted us and hearts that dream of ways that we might use those gifts to be a blessing. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.